Welcome to When I Was a Girl, where we honor the stories of survivors. On this episode, we feature a woman who can be described as a firebrand. When you hear the name Davion Tucker, the words leader, public speaker, and influencer come to mind. Her story highlights the power of forgiveness and practicing to remain present in the face of trauma from abuse as a child. Listen as we dive into part one of her story. Welcome, Davian. Hello. <laughs> Hi, guys. Um, well, you know, we, we pretty much just want to jump into you telling us about your background. Um, mm -hmm. And then, of course, you can go ahead and, and, and share your story of when you were a girl. Okay. I'm Davian Katharina Tucker. I do not like my middle name. Well, it, it took me some time to get used to it. It's strange to me. The spell it kind of funny. Oh, mine is Kathianne. It's kind of really? similar. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. Katharina. Yeah, mine is proper, proper Kathleen. So it's Davian Katharina Tucker. I am from Brownstown, St. Anne, proper rural Jamaica. Um, I lived there for 18 years until I had to leave for university in Kingston, uh, which is a very new and eye-opening experience and an experience I really wanted because I had been in this a certain type of space for a very long time. I grew up with mainly with my father, my earlier years with my dad until he remarried when I was about 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also I have two families. I have my dad and my stepmom, and my mom and my stepdad. Okay. I didn't get to know my mother until I was about eleven, um, because they how so my parents got divorced when I was a year old, and how that split happened was very very chaotic. So I remember seeing her just a bit like very, very limited amount of time when I was probably two or three. It's very unclear because I mean, I was very young. And then mm -hmm. myself and my mom nor my dad have talked about anything, literally. So there are lots of things that are still unclear. So, so you will hear me, you know, just trying to figure out the ages um, and the time period. Okay. Right, I spent a lot of time with my grandma uh, because my dad worked a lot, but my dad and I also spent a lot of time together. We had certain rituals, so like on weekends, on Saturday mornings, we'd get up really early, go to the market, mm -hmm. and then after that, we'd come home, unpack all the items, unpack the groceries, and then head to the beach, and we'd spend hours at the beach. My dad really loved the beach. We also went on a lot of trips around Jamaica, uh, which is where I developed that love for seeing new things, for nature, for travel. Mm. We did that a lot. My dad loved loud music. My dad could actually make um, the sound boxes that you see at parties. My dad can make those and he used to do it for a lot of the cars in the area. But we just, he did it for home. Okay. And I remember we had a, we had a record player to so I, I grew up listening to what we call LPs, but I guess those are what, vinyls. Um, <laughs> grew up I listening have to, do to my vinyls. Checks. Yeah, so he called it LPs, but I think there okay. are still LPs. I can't remember what LP even means. I just know that's what he said. It's funny <laughs> how you grew up as a child using words you don't even know what they mean. Well, right, okay. but they're yeah. vinyls, and we still listen to a lot of vinyls. Um, 
I remember he and I, we, we danced a lot. So I love to dance. No, I love loud music and I love to dance. But dad and I used to dance to Sam Cooke a lot. Mm. So even now when I hear Sam Cooke, it's just like I can feel, taste, smell everything that was around when I was a child because it was so special to do that with him. Yeah. And I'd stand on his feet and we'd dance wherever we were. Once music came on, we'd be dancing, even upon public road. I remember one time we went to a record shop and they were blasting the music and I was just in the vibe. I was, I couldn't have been more than seven. And I literally started dancing and everybody, including my dad, boosted me. And I went into the road and I was doing my thing, traffic stop and everything. It was so funny. <laughs> but that was the type of energy um, and relationship my dad and I had. Yeah. We were very, 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 very close. Um, so during my time in St. Anne as well, outside of him, my dad being a bedrock of support and like a kind of quiet reinforcement, he wasn't the guy who would say the things outrightly, like saying, no, you're capable or, you know, he would do it, but in his own way. Um, mm. so I would know that he is being supportive. I would know that he is proud of me and that sort of a thing. So that held yeah. me, that held, that, that grounded me. Um, and allowed me to be confident. But at the same time, I was fighting other battles outside of that that ultimately affected um, how I thought about myself, how I perceived people, um, yeah. how I made decisions. Just I made a lot of decisions as a child. I grew up, I would say, pretty quickly, not in terms of responsibilities but emotionally socially i had to deal with quite a bit of things so so before you go into some of those um perhaps some of those struggles mm -hmm. um i mean just to recap so we're seeing where you've had this vibrant childhood always, essentially I was always talkative i was always <laughs> the one on the stage I was always in front yeah. of some sort of crowd. This talking I'm doing now, I've been doing it. Always from, doing it. So and there you people go. So actually full of confidence. bother me about it. Like, you chat too much, but hey, it works. It works. Well, the thing is, and you had the freedom to be mm -hmm. you in, 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 um, for the most part. I, well, I, I would say I took that freedom for myself. I just didn't allow. After a while, I just, I just was myself um, most of the time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so the turning point in, in that journey where you, you became more vulnerable, what would you say um, created that? The first stage, I would say, of how I experienced victimization, which I, I guess is more of a, me being a part of a situation and it thus affecting me, not direct victimization would be my parents splitting at the age of one mm. and nobody really talked with me about it i just came and saw these two people who were just very separate didn't really understand or have a connection to my mom mm -hmm. i don't really remember that mm -hmm. but i remember seeing her um, but it's interesting that you have any recollection at all, even at right, one. Right. I so so they split years. at one, but it seemed as if they had some sort of joint custody, because I would see her randomly between the ages of two and three on maybe like a random weekend. I don't remember everything, and I would okay. see some pictures, um, 
but I, I, the last time I really believe I saw her was the age of three. So it's actually interesting that I have memories mm-hmm. from those times. Um, I remember, so I would say when, when she had to go, mm. which is fine, it happens, marriages end, you know, family split. But, but at the same time, at the same time, I think parents parents take it for granted that children don't feel as much as they do because we're we're little we're we're not you know adults with yeah. all the things, um, but we're little humans. Same. Also, I think they oversee it a little in in the midst of their own their own dilemma. Right, right. Yeah, so many things get overlooked. Truth, um, but there at the end of the day, that is no excuse. There no. comes a point in every adult journey, and I know that now. Yeah, where you must decide to do the right things, even if those things are difficult. 100%. And like I said, to this date, no discussion has been had and I am much older now. But, so I would say the first instance of that was how both adults in my life handled um, their own trauma and then handled how their decisions affected me. Yeah. and me understanding why certain things happened um, and why I didn't have a mom around mm. or I'd see this person randomly and then I just never saw her again um, type of thing. Because yeah. when you, psychologically, when you lose your primary caregiver at that very early stage, it naturally creates a distrust in that person. That just is a fact. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. There are just certain things that you need at that stage. um, And uncontrollably so, you are tiny. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And and, um, now shaping what you are seeing and interpreting and understanding. And so if that guidance isn't there, that that sort of... um, care then a lot can go off lots of implications yeah uh, the second instance of victimization i'd say is um i mean not they would second because i thought about something else before mm-hmm. um my dad had to work a lot and so i spent a lot of time with my grandmother as i said and at my grandma's house, there are multiple people. It's a big house and a lot of different people in the family living there. So I had a cousin. Um, I had multiple cousins who would babysit. And then I had one male cousin who was given the opportunity to babysit. Um, I don't know how that process played out or, or why. Um, but I just remember I had female cousins who would watch me. And then that changed at a, like a you know, short point. Probably just they couldn't do it that day or something. Yeah. Um, and he took advantage of the situation. I remember different parts of it. I remember my family being outside and he'd be in the bathroom with me, sexually assaulting me. Mm. Um, I remember the discomfort and the pain from his nails because he had very long nails and what he would do was painful. Um, I remember... (laughs) 
How old are you at this time? At this stage, I was probably six or seven. I know I went to the hospital, which I'll tell you about, in grade two. So whatever age is grade one and two, it started from like grade one. So that would be mm. six. And how old was the person? He was in high school. So he was probably 16, 17. Okay. And um, I remember, so I remember little bits, the nails. I remember like the scraping pain. Um, That's I, awful. Yeah, it was awful. Yeah. I remember, it gets worse. I remember one night my dad had to go to work late and he had to stay with me. And I just remember like that driving out. And then I just remember my underwear coming off. I just remember that feeling. And then I don't know what I like. It's literally like I just completely blanked out. I don't remember what else happened. Mm -hmm. And then I remember another instance where my grandma had a lot of land by the house. And he took me down to um, some part of the land. And I just remember seeing his thing i can't say it it's so funny i feel though by the way just saying but it's just kind of strange like um yeah he's saying it it's funny so i remember i didn't know anything of course i'm six um but i remember being at a distance and seeing it seeing his pubic area and then i don't remember anything else but a salty taste in my mouth genuinely i don't remember any movement or anything, I just remember seeing it and I remember the salty taste in my mouth. Um, and those memories literally started resurfacing when I started telling my story like in a real way. Mm. Um, and so I remember those instances, how it ended my dad played a lot of football, so I was at football matches. And I remember one Sunday evening, daddy took off his gears and we we're walking towards the car. And like I said, daddy, I feel something down there. Cause you know, you're not going to say it. You had to six years child. Hmm. So like, I feel something down there. And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, I feel something, you know, in my vagina. Um, he's like, all right, when we get home, we look at it. And like I said, my dad and I were very close. So certain things just didn't bother me with daddy yeah. um, and I was also sort of a sickly child which is not surprising no because I was very stressed out at a very early age of course I used to be very sick a lot so um, I learned how to be aware of my body and communicate what was happening to me because my dad never came into the doctor's office with me he would sit on the in the waiting area and allow me to go inside unless the doctor called him he always gave me that sort of independence and taught me how to manage myself and um communicate what i needed to and so uh, so when we got home now um he looked at it and then i remember he checked which was okay okay something's really there and then he i remember he took a q-tip and you know inserted it and i remember when he took it back out there was just blood all over it oh okay. and then he said to me, did anybody hurt you? What happened? And I couldn't tell him. I was like, hell no, nah. this is going to go south now. Like, because one, 
as we know the shame that comes with that like it was just oh my god he's gonna know that this thing has been happening and so it's that personal shame of it and then i also worried that he was gonna hurt somebody hurt this person and then the whole family would just collapse that he into would get chaos it would just be chaos um right and so i didn't want anybody else to get hurt because i was already being hurt i felt terrible because of course no dave and you should have said something before you know that whole conversation um you should have done something Mm. so he caught and i I wasn't telling him and he called my aunt she was like my favorite aunt Mm -hmm. and he called her and she talked and she said dave and you have to tell us what happened and she said, who did it? Did somebody hurt you? And I said, no. She's like, who did it? I said, no. And she said, what's the name of the person? And I gave the name of the cousin. Mm. And I remember in the morning, I woke up in a pool of blood. It was the first time I saw bloody underwear. Um, and he, had, like I said, I used to be at a doctor a lot. So I had my one doctor. And my doctor wasn't available. So he had to take me to the p- a pediatrician further away because clearly something it's is so wrong serious. with me. so serious, yeah. And um, when I went, one of the things I remember her asking was, has this child ever been carnally abused? That was the first time I heard the term carnal and abuse. And I mean, I knew what it meant immediately. I was, you know, common sense. Um, and I but remember- you're about- Six, eight, yeah. six to eight at this right. point, but, about eight. Right. Uh, but I, like I said, I, I grew up around, I grew up pretty early. I was around adults all the time. Okay. All the time. Mm-hmm. But m- more than that, humans are born with an Im- embedded wisdom in them. And it's wisdom is not something you find or is to be attained. It's really something that you remember. It's just like you hear something from the bible or from buddha and naturally just resonate with it you just know what it means without actually knowing what the words mean for example you feel it mm. i knew what she was talking about i mean we know what the word abuse means but more yeah. than that i know what happened to me so by the extension of she's this lady seeing this she thing she just gave it a name she gave it a name and i knew what the name i knew what it meant and i remember some space being created like we didn't answer i think she stepped out something and i remember like my dad saying or we agreed i had gotten like a big cut like i, I used to play a lot and i'd gotten a big cut on my leg and i remember i think saying it's a cut like we we it never made any sense to me but i think we tied it to the fact that so no the answer was no and we tied it to whatever happened there and I spent about a week in the hospital. On your leg? Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. So that became something I like plausible. a in. Yeah, man. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I spent like a week in the hospital um, because I was bleeding, I guess. Um, and that was also a very interesting experience because that was the first time I was away from my dad. Me and my dad slept in the same bed every single night until he got married again that's that's when i said close yeah and it was it was not really easy but i'm also very adaptable so and i've always been that way so i was like okay in the hospital now so good so goes it i'm just here i have to be here um but uh, discomfort took place there as well when i remember they rolled me to the theater and it was a man that was gonna perform the procedure or whatever 
And I just remember hearing like they put the anesthesia and they're like, okay, we're gonna count you down. And I just, but the voice was a male voice, mm. and it was like, oh my god, no, 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 no. Like, I, but I couldn't even react because the anesthesia was kicking, kicking in. in. And I just remember the same process of it. It's just like, oh no, this person, I don't have any control right now. Boom fall asleep so let me ask you were they treating you at the time so as, a, as a, a, a victim of sexual abuse no they no, were not they weren't well i don't know what happened behind the scenes but from my recollection or what i was privileged to understand yeah no because we didn't tell the doctor that it was, it was that, that. Um, wow. and interesting so that's why i also i remember the like the thrashing of the nails because that's what happened i developed a mass in my vagina or cervix vagina if you go low end um and i guess when my dad touched it with a q-tip maybe he irritated it or something oh, and it started to bleed. bleed okay um so i remember going to the theater counting me down and then they told me they wouldn't do surgery to remove it um and i remember they gave us some sort of medication but I remember the first time we put the medication on, it burned like hell and we never used it again. <laughs> so I don't know what happened, to be honest. I don't know if they actually did the surgery and nobody told me or because I was out for a while. And then I remember leaving the hospital. Okay. Then it got worse because on the way home, we stopped by my grandma's house and he called my cousin in front of me and asked if he had ever touched me in front of me. And he, the cousin lied twice. He told him, no, no. And my dad said, okay, when I come back, I will deal with it. I don't know what happened that day or after. After that day, nobody spoke to Davian about that situation. Nobody. Not one adult in my life decided, okay, maybe we need to just talk with this child about what's been happening. And I had to consistently see this person after because he lived at the house. And that's where I had to spend most of my time you know, after school, on weekends, my grandma lives there. It's, it would be abnormal if I stopped going. Yeah. And I had to be there all the time, seeing, seeing this person all the time. And I remember my dad saying to me, don't tell grandma that you were in the hospital because it might make her, you know, sick or feel she's older. So, mm. so it's oh, like, man. oh, my God. So oh. this happened and this is just this terrible thing. And I can't tell my mm. grandmother. Right. I can't say, grandma, you know, I was sick because then it's gonna just blow up. So I felt, I felt like I had done something very wrong that I couldn't even tell my grandma, you know, right. already having the feelings of shame and like it was on me, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. you know. How do you remember feeling um, during that time, like those years? Nah, it was, it wasn't, it was, uh, there was a heaviness, there was angst, um, there was disappointment. Mm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of disappointment. And, um, but there's always a but, you know. Yeah. My hospital experience was interesting because there were, there was a girl who, beside me and she had boils all over her body. I will never forget her. She, she could, couldn't comb her hair because she had these b big boils, like oversized, where you could see water in it wow she had them in her hair she had them on her feet she had them everywhere this little kid you know and i remember them bringing um 
the little potty for her to pee because she couldn't walk. So they'd have to help her to pee. And I remember her dad, I think, coming as well. And I just remember talking to her and like being some sort of encouraging in my and like I'm in my own state. Yeah. I'm still there feeling like I want to help this girl. And I was just six. Um and that's how I know destiny and purpose unfolds as it should, because I've always been that way where despite what i'm enduring um i am looking into myself yes but at the same time it's important to me that if suffering is happening around me that i try to help the root cause at least of that i try to do something about it to help in some way i just remember talking to her a lot and i just saw other kids who were in dire situations and Mm -hmm. i just thought to myself man I wish I could help them. Um, so mm. at the same time, even though it was really hard to process everything, and I was a child, so I wasn't actually processing everything. Most of this yeah. processing is in retrospect. Right. Not, you know, not I was getting just, any kind of Right. I didn't know to label it. I didn't know to right. I didn't, like that. I couldn't call it anything. I didn't know anything like that. So, yeah. so I would say that was my second run with, um victimization then at the same time i was bullied a lot in school so physically and verbally i get teased a lot i remember kids calling me the white bitch of rose hall what because apparently i'm light-skinned and i don't like black people all of my friends were dark-skinned majority of the population at the school was like that i come on anyway so there's no even Mm. need to rationalize Mm -hmm. it i used to get teased a lot i got called a lot of names um boys physically assaulted me um and the teachers would always say oh you know it's because i'm like you which is uh, another stigma and the stereotype that really needs to be broken because then yeah. you grow into that culture of, of domestic abuse right. and just abuse in general yeah um as if that is connected or has some link to being loved or exactly liked. um so i was bullied a lot man i remember one time one time a kid tripped me down the stairs. My dad had to come to the school. Um, when he's not tripping, they might beat me up. When he's not beating me up is, there was, I remember one time I was walking. <laughs> Man, kids are so interesting. You know, I was walking and we just feel one stone connecting at the back of my neck. I mean, connecting her. Oh, I mean, I don't know if they were playing stone war. Quote, I don't know what was. I just know that a stone fly from out of nowhere and knocked me right in the back of my neck. And I looked around. I couldn't see anybody. And I just had to keep walking. I just kept walking because I'm just like, okay, this is going to be over soon. I, I'm going to leave this school soon. But it was daily, it was a struggle to just be there. Because it don't matter how many times you're bullied, once it starts, once it happens, once. Yeah. It take it can take a toll on you. Um, one time alone. Is, right, exactly. Is, one is, time is awful, alone. Traumatic. And I'm telling you, it's multiple times. My dad had to be at that school regularly. And when he wasn't to deal with the staff, it would be to deal with this Students. individual. Just be like, leave her alone. It's diff- It was different individuals. Or, yeah, multiple, yeah, people, multiple at people at different points. And was it primary or high school we're talking Pri- about? Primary. Okay. So definitely not at high school yet. So this is all 
childhood stage. Wow, wow. Um, so I was bullied a lot. And so it was like I was an outcast at school because I loved to be involved. I loved to speak. The teachers took to me because I was never afraid of anything. Um, so I was very confident educationally. I spoke well. I just I knew what I liked and I went with that. Um, I, but then when it came to socially, people didn't like me being how I was being, which was my natural state of being. Yeah. And so navigating that space was difficult. Being in class, focusing on what's happening in front of me, focusing on my extracurriculars, normal, normal, easy. But when it came to stepping outside of class, um, school events and stuff, I would always end up being involved anyway because interacting was not really um a simple thing for me yeah so yeah um so the bullying was a real thing and that that affected and i guess we'll get there uh, my perception about a lot of things i mm, what else happened anything I, major in like your teen years yeah man um well i felt like an outcast at school and at home not with my dad, but we, just with my family, we're just really different. I was just a different kid. Um, and nobody made it seem like it was okay to be that way. Um, it's not like they pushed me away, but I guess everybody was also older. So their focus was different and which also sexualized me very early outside of the actual sexual encounters mm. as around teenagers a lot. So they're listening to certain types of music, reading certain types of things, watching certain types of things. And mm. I'd be exposed to that. I remember one time I was in my living room, in grandma's living room, we we're all watching something. And that's when I knew that the abuse affected me. Actually, that was the first time. We were watching something mm. on TV and it was about a court case with a girl who had been raped. And I got up. At the point when the conversation started about the rape, rape, I got up. I was sitting on the floor and I remember I got up and left the room. And I went around the side and I was just like, no. Can I watch that? I couldn't watch it. Yeah. And it almost happened again. There was a guy who lived, uh, funny, you said I remember my memory. There was a guy who went to a seven-day church in the area. He lived beside my grandmother. He got very close to my grandmother. He'd always be at the house. He was like six feet tall. He was really tall. And I remember one day this man called me over to him yard, told me he had a game. It was this duck game where you shoot the ducks. And I was I like, okay. It. Yeah, I'm a kid. I'm coming to play the game. So I go over there to play the game, and I'm playing the game. And I get a very sickening feeling in my stomach. I'm just like, this feels weird. It's just us. Mm. Uh, so I playing a game. I've been through this before. Yeah. So it was just weird, like strange feeling. And then I remember he like said, I don't know how he got me into the room. Like he wanted to show me something. I don't know. And I remember him pushing me on the bed and jumping on top of me. This big six foot man. This big six foot man. <laughs> and I'm like, you know what? This now I'm not getting a like this is not and I fought my way out and I don't know what I don't know if it hit him again like you're an adult this is a child what are you doing yeah I don't know but I fought and I screamed and I fought and I remember running back over to my grandma's house how old were you then around eight probably never reached ten yet because I was still playing games 
Um, and I know that was like 10 onwards, I wasn't doing that. I was like eight. I was tiny. I mean, look how small I am now. Can you imagine how small I was at six, seven, eight? I cannot. And then he came over to the house after, and I remember hearing his voice, and I was watching TV in the couch, I was facing the TV, and I flipped over and stuck my head in the side of the couch. And he came, and then he touched me, and I, was, I froze. And then he was like, you know, he had a name he would always call me. And then he said the name, and he was like, I'm sorry. Then he proceeded to lift me up in front of my grandmother mm. because, you know, I can't fight it at that point. I, I mean, I, well, I could have, but it, no, we know how it yeah. goes. Mm -hmm. So he picked me up there and that was just the gas, strangest gaslighting. Um, this man is literally, he knows what he did to me. Yeah. He knows the effect of something like that as an adult. And he proceeded to then further the trauma by lifting me up something as intimate as that in front of people who I couldn't, who I should be saying something to and I haven't. And I just thought people can be so devious. Human beings have the capacity to be good and kind. And we also have the capacity to feed into our own pain and allow that, that to take us over. Mm. So that was another run with, with, with that, um, sort of victimization yeah um so that accumulation of trauma and pain that also didn't really seem like trauma and pain at the time because i was a child and not processing it in that way i just you know was going along I, like i said i was always very active so um i was very distracted at the time and everybody assumes i'm good so i'm there assuming i'm also fine mm-hmm get to high school now. So I left primary school as head girl and like president of a million different clubs. Uh, and I was very active at church too. So I get to high school now and in grade seven, I'm booming. I get there. Funny enough, somebody saw me the other day and reminded me of it. She was apparently like a monitor or a prefect. And she said, David, when you came to Westwood, you were just like, firing like you you were also very anxious though like you just you were anxious to do well and to 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 be something and i i remember those feelings i grew up with a lot of anxiety um so i remember understandably so understand that yeah, yeah i was always you know trying to stay a step ahead of conflict a step ahead of anybody hurting me or anything right. hurting me i just no, I had to be in control. I had to be in control. I had to be in control all the time. So I get to high school and I just wanted to do that. I wanted to stay involved, which was great. I wanted to be head girl like I was, you know, I left primary school as head girls. I wanted to continue that path of leadership. And I call high school the period when I lost my voice because I lost my sense of self um, and awareness at that time. And a part of that process is puberty. That naturally happens where you start to recognize things about yourself mm. and other people. But more so now, the bullying changed into a more intellectual sort of thing and more of an attack on my physical development. So I was always very small, flat-chested, no hips type of thing until very late. I was a late bloomer. And I was teased for that. Um, but it really, it wasn't that. I recognize now that people were either intimidated by me mm -hmm. or 
felt like I shouldn't be the way I am and so tried to find little ways of breaking that down and knowing based on my response to their attacks on my you know physical right they knew that's what would get to me and it did um, I was an outlier in primary school I worse an outlier in high school there were all these cliques all these groups and I was never a part of any of them and there were moments when I thought okay I don't want to be a part of it it's not necessary and then other moments when I felt like no I, I this is I want to be a part of something now I feel like I've been suffering for long enough as this you know outside kid being different I just want to fit in I just I just want to blend in now it became literally how I sound right now it became very tiring to be myself mm. um and so Grade seven, grade eight, I was focused on my work, focused on what I like to do. What did you want to do, like in terms of leadership? I liked leadership. I liked being involved in clubs. It didn't matter what it was. I just liked being involved. Okay. Right. I liked public speaking. I liked dancing. Um, I liked just being with people, like anything that had to do with a group. I had actually loved that, but then it, it was never. I think like I was never a part of any group or, you know, um, but I just, I liked causes. So like any club that had any relations to that, I would try to get involved, but leadership mm-hmm. was my main thing. Um, yeah. and so by grade nine, no, you know, grade nine is usually that turning point Yeah, where you become very aware of the other sex, you become aware of your gender and what it means it starts to mean to to uh, make decisions because you're choosing your subjects at that point responsibility starting to change and like in grade nine i was just like okay i don't want to do this anymore i just want to be i don't want to stand out literally i don't want to be a part of anything that's like i don't want teachers to like me because that was what caused everybody else who I thought was important to dislike me. Mm. And so I lost sight of what was important to mm. myself, to school. So I lost, I call it that time I lost my voice because I just completely blended. So I didn't leave high school as head girl, which easily I would have. Um, my grades were fine. They were okay, but not the overachiever type of, um, or very, at the attention to detail I would normally have given, which then would result in a certain level of performance. Yeah. It was different. Um, and I still didn't leave with friends anyway. I left with one friend, which was like my best friend. But my best friend was also very involved in other groups. She was that popular kid. Um, so at the same time, there was still this sort of strange distance. Um, and there was a point when I had to do the right thing in high school. My best friend involved, um, she broke a rule, essentially. Mm-hmm. And they called me in as a person to say, yes, she broke the rule or confirm that it happened, which was really hard because I was already disliked by most people. And then there's this one friend I have who know, you know. You have to tell on. And I did. I told the truth, which was hard. I told the truth and it just that just got it just got worse after that. So which was in around grade nine. So I was just like, forget this type of thing. And so I would say that I cannot 
describe all the ways that things from my childhood, um, the constant conflict within myself because I am this way and then outside of me doesn't like that. I can't describe how it affected me, but majorly mm. I would say I felt an extreme need to always be in control of everything. Like I said, staying ahead of everything and ever thinking that I could stay ahead of everything and everyone mm -hmm. who could possibly hurt me, which is imp completely absurd. It, it, it as fight, it's like fighting darkness. You, it makes no sense. Mm. Um, and that level of need to control gave rise to my ego. The ego always seeks to control, always feels threatened, always needs to be in charge and, and label and judge. And I think mm -hmm. that need of control gave rise to my ego and stubbornness as well. Um, it, it shot my confidence a lot. Um, so I, I was first able to maintain my confidence in things I had to do, but all the things we do aren't us. Like, you know, nothing I'm involved in is me. I am me and those things are just things that I do. And so, I, so being confident in those things ultimately means nothing. If I'm not confident in myself, those things are just a distraction right. from the underlying issues. Um, so when that started to unfold, the, the the realization that I'm not okay, that I need to, 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 to work on something in me, that then took a toll on um, my confidence. Because then at that point, I felt like something was wrong with me because everybody made me feel that way instead of, you know, just allowing me to go through my own process of development. Um, so my confidence took a real, real shot. Um, it took a long time to rebuild that um, confidence uh, in yourself versus in the things that you could do. Right. And, but, and at the end mm. of the day, the confidence starts in you. Right. So it's a misconception I had and most people have that you can perform at the highest level without being confident in who you yeah. are right. um, and having that self-awareness. So then you will do things you don't want to do. You mm -hmm. will choose areas um for example even a degree like i did because um you don't know yourself you, you choose things you don't want you, you think you want because everything else outside of you starts dictating that um but you give up like i said your your level of control when it is that you aren't aware of who you are and what you want the control now is external um I was in a constant conflict with who I felt I was versus who I had been and who I was being at the time. So I always felt like naturally I was calm. I always felt naturally that I was a peaceful person. I, and by peaceful, I mean, I always felt like I existed like at a certain level of awareness and connection to God, connection to everything around me. I could feel the animals. I could, it's kind of strange to say it, but I could feel the animals. I could, I'd be wherever I am. I could just feel what was happening around me. But the more pain I accumulated, the more trauma, um, 
and and then thus the control you know from my ego and the clouding of my mind that disconnected me from those feelings the the time i feel most real is the time that i am most connected to god and myself um, and by being connected to god i am connected to myself um, because it is god's energy that is inside of me but mm -hmm. Um, I was always at conflicts. So I'd be doing things, saying things, acting out of anger, acting out of anxiety, acting out of these really negative things. And, you know, manifesting things are just, that's just not me. And I know it's not me, but it's almost like something completely different takes over and I'm just autopilot. It's not me. Just never made sense. So you're talking now about how... The that, trauma that, of the past essentially had had, so, had been manifesting, how it was now affecting so it, you. So how it manifested like that in the present at the right. time, at that time of childhood, right. manifested that in the present at that time in high school. So yeah. like I said, I, I, I tried to fit in. And I, so in trying to fit in, I would just do the wrong things. I'd follow the crowd, yeah. do the foolishness. Right. Um, in primary school, I'd lash out a lot, honestly. Like I was... I'd be a very, I'm a re very respectful kid, but at the same time, once I am triggered, because I had a lot that could be triggered, right? I would respond anyhow. Like I, I would load up my father. I would load up anybody. I was that. I was still that kid, good kid, but I would lash out. Um, I feel like those are some of the tell signs. Would you there, say they are the tell signs? But nobody said that to me. Okay. Nobody gave me any sort of support with it. So it was just. In my mind, I labeled myself as um, outspoken in a negative way at the same time, though I was doing the right things. Yeah. So just a conflict. I don't, I can't fully put it into words, but I had a lot of conflict with myself because I was moving between moods, moving between ways of being respectful, then completely disrespectful, you know, type of thing. For anyone that might be listening, I feel like that's a very important note to make because I mean, you may be, you may have kids, you may have, you may be around children, um, young people and see these kinds of behavioral traits and, and might not be able to pinpoint where it's coming from, what's going on. Right. We're so quick to label children as bad, ill man or that kind of thing. But, but, but there could very well be these issues at play. Mm -hmm. um, Usually something, there's something, there's always something that is triggering that child to be that way. I firmly believe that. You just heard part one of a two-part interview with Davian Tucker. In this episode, she shared about her experiences of victimization during childhood. In part two, we will hear how this trauma affected her in adulthood and her keys to healing. Remember to stay tuned. The When I Was a Girl podcast is a space where the life stories of survivors are shared clearly, truthfully, and with a focus on restoration and hope. For anyone who has experienced abuse, we encourage you to reach out to us here at Girls First International. You can find us at wearegirlsfirst.com or find us on Instagram at girlsfirstja and on Facebook at girlsfirst.com.